It's episode 100 of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, and this is a film marketing special with Kate Edwards, a talent manager from Hollywood, California. Welcome, everybody, to another recording of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. This is a very, very special recording because this is episode 100 of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. As always, I'm Roger Edwards, and he is Pascal Fintoni. Pascal, what do you think about the 100-episode milestone? Uh, Pretty incredible, and I'm feeling pretty chuffed. I know that one should not blow one's trumpet, but then if you don't, who will? Uh, number 100, three years of productions, three years of engaging with our viewers and listeners. And as we did with number 50, we have a special guest. We have a special guest. Now, we don't normally do interviews on Two Geeks and the Marketing Podcast, but as Pascal said, for episode 50, we interviewed Mike Reader, and that was really interesting. We thought we'd have another interview for episode 100. And, And I'm absolutely delighted that our guest on episode 100 of Two Geeks and the Marketing Podcast is my sister. Yes, my sister, Kate Edwards, who lives and works in Hollywood, right in the middle of one of the biggest film production empires on earth. (laughs) And we just thought we will have a fabulous conversation with Kate. She's lived there for over 30 years. She's been involved in some very famous films. Pascal, you're excited about this, aren't you? Yeah, completely. So uh, what we're going to be exploring is, of course, her work. You know, I find that always fascinating to understand how people get into, got into the movie making industry and find a very specific discipline. In her case, she's the owner of a management company. And then, for instance, with you, I want to talk quickly about being on set, what it's like to find clients, to be amongst uh, t- talented individuals, but also talking about, of course, film marketing. So we're really excited about this interview. So, Pascal, I think, as always, we should fire up the flux capacitor, set the controls, and head on over to Los Angeles and Hollywood. So, Kate Edwards, welcome to Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. It's fantastic to see you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for asking me. And, of course, you are zooming in from way over the pond. Pascal is in France, of course. I'm in Edinburgh, as always. And you are in Los Angeles. Are you actually actually in uh, your home in Venice, or are you in, in the office? Yeah, this is my home office in Venice. Fantastic. Through the backyard. (laughs) (laughs) So, Kate, we would love to talk to you today about all things films. We'd love to talk to you today about your life and your experiences in Hollywood. And we thought a really good way to start would be to just tell us a little bit about Grandview Management and what you do and what a week in the life of Kate Edwards looks like. You know, a week in the life varies. It just depends what's called for. For example, now we're in the middle of a strike, so things have calmed down. There's a big writer's strike, um, and the director's contract is up June 30th, as are the actors. 
So this is sort of one of those seminal moments where the strike is really about the future, about AI um, and how that impacts all of the different disciplines. So this week has been, or the last two weeks have been sort of different than a normal week, but a normal week consists of any business that I have in New York, I do early in the morning because of the time change. Most of my clients live here. I only have six clients at the moment, um, which I like because as a manager, different than from an agent, you can focus and really try as much as possible to support and plot and, and orchestrate a career. It's harder to do than it used to be because now you've got the impact of influencers, TikTok stars, you know, that are getting cast in things. And so the real craft of acting has kind of been diluted because it's, as we know, a lot of it's all about money. And so they'll put people in roles that have millions of followers as opposed to who necessarily is best for the role. So my job on a daily basis is reading scripts, looking for the right match of actor to role. And how I do that is when I read a script, if I can hear my client's voice in that character, I know that that's something to really fight for. Um, it's a gut feeling too, but mostly it's about hearing. It has to be a good story too, and a good script and a good character, <laughs> but you can hear that voice. Those are the things to fight for as opposed to the things that, yes, he could do or she could do, but so could a lot of other people. So... Other parts of my job consist of being a cheerleader, um, being a fireman, <laughs> fires, you know, putting out the drama, um, and just being there to listen and give advice. And sometimes, you know, it's a bit of a therapist. No, it's actually, it's a lot of a therapist kind of stuff as well. So a day is never the same. What would you say was the difference between an agent and a manager then? I guess I've never really, until this moment, thought there was, there was. I just assumed an agent and a manager was the same thing, and obviously that's not right. Now, agents today have hundreds of clients, and so their job is mostly sales. It's, you know, find a role, get an audition, let the actor go in and do their thing. My job is everything it's that, but it's everything after that as well. It's once an agent and a lawyer do their thing, the lawyers often negotiate contracts. I oversee everything, but then I'm holding hands with that actor throughout the whole shoot, throughout post-production, throughout uh, the movie being released. And the agent is then looking for the next job. And I have my eye on that as well. But their job is kind of complete once an actor's actually on set doing their thing. If there's a huge problem, then I get the call, but then they come in and help with that. But that, you know, that's where that doesn't usually happen. But theirs is mostly sales, and mine is mostly support and marketing and focus on that client and the needs of that client. Agents have way too many clients to be able to really do that. So that's, that's the basic difference. We'll come back very soon to the the marketing element. You use a magic word for a podcast entitled Two Geeks and Marketing Podcast. But I wanted to go back to script reading. And 
I suppose ask you after you know all those years of reading scripts and matching it to the right voice and and obviously talent. Have you come up with a little kind of formula when the script within the first five, 10 pages, you know whether or not is going to work from the structure and storytelling point of view? Yes, but I also, and this is, I know this is weird, but I, I feel often a responsibility to finish a script, to really read the whole thing, which um, is time consuming. But I feel like if there's a seed of something, then... I owe it to that writer who's probably spent months and months and months or years writing that to actually really consider it. Occasionally, something is so bad that you go, um, there's no way, and then I'll thumb through. But mostly I read I read everything all the way through. And that's one of the things that my clients like and why I have so few clients because I couldn't do that for loads and loads of people. But the actors that I have are really trained actors and they they love to be able to discuss details of a character and script and you know they can't do that with their agents so they do that with me and sometimes I'll see something something in a character that they don't and there's been occasions where I've seen something and said something that's triggered them to go oh I see how to I see how I could do that yeah I see how I can tackle that role in sort of a different way so it's a synergistic thing and it, it lets me be creative as well which I like <laughs> and, and forgive me do you receive the scripts directly from the, the script writers or is it via agencies or commissioners it's, it's, it's usually via agents or lawyers um it's it's a difficult thing to 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 take on unsolicited scripts because people have been sued you know you read something Ten years down the road, a client does something with a similar theme and they come back at you to say, oh, that was my script and it wasn't. So there's a certain level of protection if it comes from an agent. And oftentimes, oh, it, not only does it come from agents, but it comes from producers as well. If you have clients that are at a certain level, then they'll send things directly for that particular client. That's usually how it goes. I, I, I love that that image that I have in my head now of, of you sat there reading a script for one of your clients and actually being able to hear he or she in that role. I mean, that obviously that comes from years and years of experience, which you have, but it also requires an absolute... Or, or, or deep knowledge and, and and connection with that client of yours enable in order to be able to be in that position of just being able to close your eyes and see them acting uh, and I, again I, I I think that's that's probably what does set you apart from from the the agents who who just do things very quickly is that deep relationship that you have with the actors that you work with I think that's why I my clients have had for such a long time because it does, you know, it, it, it builds up that trust. It builds up that ability to hear that voice and ability to know something that is, is different that somebody else might not have thought of. Sometimes they get a script and they're submitting for a certain role and then I'll read the script and go, Oh, this role might be smaller, but that's the role that has the voice. Even if it's a couple of scenes, you just, it's just a knowing that happens. And it happens quickly now. It happens quickly. 
I think Pascal, you said the other day when we were we were thinking about this conversation and some of the questions that we'd like to ask Kate. I think you said it sounds like Kate's job is almost like the the overall. What did you do? You actually say project manager? I can't remember. I said that the, said ultimate, that. the ultimate, the ultimate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I sometimes think of it as the the orchestra. You know, the the man with the baton. The conductor. The conductor. Yes. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Just Americans would say it's the quarterback of the team, but <laughs> I think it's it's the conductor because there's, there's a bit more finesse that goes into that. But that's true, and that stems from when you know when you're managing the career of someone who's just beginning, as opposed to somebody who's really established. That's a whole different skill set too. Um, and again, it's it's really hard for people starting out. I represent a. a, a a beautiful, wonderful young girl. She's 21. And it's so, she's so good. But now, you know, that we've gone through COVID, all the auditions are via Zoom. Nobody's oh. seen anybody in person. And so there is an impersonal factor that's come into this that, that wasn't there before. Things happen when an actor goes in the room. When they walk in the door, you kind of know if that person is the person. And then you hope that they can act. Now everything is that that step removed and it makes it much harder to get feedback because the casting director isn't looking into the actor's eyes. Like they are, but they're not, if you know what I mean. And hmm. so it, it's very different. And for somebody starting out and for somebody who's been doing this for a long time that has a career and has a resume and has a reel and they still want you to put yourself on tape is it's really hard you know and a lot of a lot of stuff has been now lumped onto the actor that wasn't before an actor now has to have lighting and the ability the ability to edit and the ability to upload and do all of that stuff that they never had to do before and so i i find that a little unfair but it's not going to go back so you, you know you have to create and move with the times but it's I think that that's sort of a detriment to the process. Oh, do you know that that that's that is such a shame, and and, and I I've, I think that obviously things like Zoom and Teams as well. Yes, during the pandemic, it really helped us all, didn't it? It kept us moving, it kept us in jobs and everything. But I think as well, we've conned ourselves into thinking that Zoom has become. This be this this is a sort of solution to everything, you know. Both Pascal and I uh, um, speak at conferences, and quite a lot of conferences are still online. And I don't care what anybody says, you can still do a speech online, but you still don't get that connection that you can get with real people in a real room. Yeah. And that's the same in all industries. And and I just I, I just I'm sitting here. I can't. How can how can an actor possibly do an audition? over over a video it, it, with i know it, it's sometimes crazy they, sometimes the scenes are, require action and, yeah. <laughs> and mm. stuff and you know you're, you're sitting there doing all this stuff and it's it just even at the best of times it's really hard to translate you just made me think of something though it's it's almost the difference between acting on stage and acting on film mm. because on stage you have that chemistry with the audience that you don't have with film you know, on film, you do something, you do a movie, and it takes maybe a year to come out. And so it it's a removed 
thing. And yet when it does come out, then there's that interaction. But it's not like it's never like being on stage where you have where it's different every night, where depending on how the mood of the audience can affect the performance on stage. And um, that's very similar now to how these auditions are set up. And it's, it is a shame. I've even had people where even the callbacks haven't been live. No. Where the callback, you know, when you've got the producer and the director, they'll call it a work session and they'll do that on Zoom as well. And I, I still think that you need an actor and an actress in a room to see if there's that real chemistry. You know, if you're in a box, it might be, but it might not be. Mm. So... As I say, I especially here in Los Angeles, where it takes such a long time to drive everywhere, <laughs> and do, there's, there there are some good things about it. But ultimately, I think it's certainly at a certain level of the audition process a detriment. We'll yeah, that that for all of us who don't live in Los Angeles, it's always that thing, isn't it? You watch a film or a series like uh, Twenty Four, Jack Bauer can drive from one end of LA to the other in six minutes when yeah, of course in reality it takes it? you all day that was one of the good things about the pandemic because you could drive anywhere and it was easy and wonderful and now it's come back even more than it was before um and that's not going away either so that's life in la mm. Our, you, have a, you have to have a car that you like being in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's splendid. I was doing some research on Kate Edwards, of course, on the internet and discovered that if the information is correct, um, this year you're celebrating 30 years of business as Grandview Management. So happy anniversary. Oh, thank you. And yeah. the question, I suppose, is, is this something that was always part of the plan, if one has a plan, or is it a profession that's, that's found you? It was never part of the plan. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my background, you know, my dad's a doctor. And my mum was an actress. So when I was at school in St. Anne's at St. Gabriel's and they asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up, I was four or five. I said that I wanted to be a doctor by day and an actress by night. And weirdly, I kind of tried to make that happen and I was a pre-med student and then I had a scholarship but it was taken away because I wasn't an American citizen at the time and so I had to make money in order to be able to go to school and so I started doing plays and I much more enjoyed doing plays than being in pre-med um, even though that's still a hobby and an interest and so anyway, I took that route as an actress, lived in Chicago, moved to LA, fell into the behind the scenes part of the business. Um, I met a man called Bob Lamond, who was John Travolta's manager at the time. And I went, I needed a job and I went and saw him and he said, look, he said, you're too smart to be an actress. He said, come and work with me and I'll teach you everything about the business. And if you want to, you can still go out on auditions. I thought, well, this is the best of everything. <laughs> and so it got to a point, this was when John was filming. It was just before, actually, in the November before he started filming um, Saturday Night Fever. He was on Welcome Back, Carter, but he was about to film. And so I thought, well, this is an opportunity. 
you know, I get to go out on auditions and I'll know everything that's going on. Very quickly, John's career took off. And I was in a position where I was giving clients the information about an audition that I had an audition for. And so I I got to the point where I couldn't say, you know, I'll see you there kind of thing. So I made a choice and decided to explore that area and that I could always go back to acting. And then Saturday Night Fever came out and, you know, John's career took off. He asked me to run his production company. I was 19. I had no clue what I was doing. He had no clue what he was doing. <laughs> and we were mentored by a company called Orion Pictures and a man called Mike Medavoy. And my first day of work there, he handed me the galleys to um, a book called Prince of the City that they had optioned. And it was like, you know, it was this thick. And he said, he handed it to me and he said, would you read this over the weekend and tell me on Monday what you think? So it was sort of trial by fire. And I was, I literally slept maybe four hours and read through this whole thing. Ultimately, John didn't do that film. Um, an actor called Treat Williams did. But that was the beginning of of that development. John Travolta Productions, it was called. And so I did that for a couple of years. It It, it wasn't... It was great for me because I was able to screen movies and and it was almost like a a master's class in film. But John wasn't much of a reader. And so the scripts would pile up and we tried everything. Jerry Worms and I ran this company and we would read the scripts to him. We put them on tape. We do all sorts of things. And I think we were all so young and so much stuff was just coming at John that there wasn't even time, there wasn't even the bandwidth, let's call it now, for him to wrap his head around really developing projects. And so many projects came through our company, but um, it was frustrating because he owed a picture to Paramount mm-hmm. before he was able to do one for Orion, and it, it got gone very convoluted. But for me, it was great meeting with writers you know, people would come in to pitch projects and they would literally be on the other side of the desk shaking. And I was on my side of the desk shaking because I didn't, and I would say to them, look, just just tell me the story, just tell me. And 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 just cut the nerves that way because I was probably more ner- nervous than they were. I don't know if I was shaking. I was shaking on the inside, maybe not, but not on the outside. But it, I guess it was just the setup of somebody coming in and actually having a meeting with somebody that could get that to John Travolta. So it was it was a great experience for me. And then after that, uh, the company closed. And that's when I decided I was going to go back to acting. And then I got a call from John's managers, who I'd worked for previously. And they said, will you come up? somebody's left, will you come back and help us out for pilot season, which was two or three months. And I said, yes. And then I was there for 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> wow. This this brings back so many memories. And of, of course, oh, sure. <laughs> John Travolta obviously went on to Greece, which is the, the big one um, yeah. that everybody ever remembers. And of course, growing up in, in Lytham St. Anne's and Blackpool, I remember you sending us a promotional copy 
of the single of "You're the One That I Want," um, well in advance of the of the film being released in the UK, and rather embarrassingly, the first time we actually played the single, um, we couldn't actually tell the difference as to who was singing, whether it was John Travolta or whether it was <laughs> Olivia Newton-John. Yeah. <laughs> John's voice is really high in that <laughs> because it is very, very, very high pitched, yeah. uh, and and just as a tip, completely and utterly random aside. Just over the last few nights, Trisha and I have watched this new TV series that's on in the UK at the moment. It's called Maryland, and it actually has Stockard Channing in it. And she must be 80, um, yeah. but she still looks pretty much like like she did in, in Greece. Um, but I just wondered whether um, somebody did that read through for her that you would do read through for um for your clients because quite honestly this is one of the worst tv series i've seen on british television for a long time and i'm thinking why did you get involved in this but that's a complete aside so if you see maryland come yeah, come over from the uk uh give it a watch and see what you think i mean i, I mean she does a good job uh, but honestly, the script is utterly dreadful. But that—that's an aside. So, uh, so Pascal. There are, there are many different <laughs> reasons that actors choose to do something. Sometimes it's about a location. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, this this is filming in Shanghai. I want to go there. Yeah. Sometimes it's because they need the money. Sometimes it's because of the people involved. Sometimes it's because a story speaks to them, even if the script isn't very good. So. It's it's try it's a balance between all of those things to say yes or no, and it's it's sometimes a lot easier to say yes than it is to say no. Yeah, you know, mm. even if it's something you know you probably shouldn't do, sometimes you say yes anyway, and then live with the <laughs> live with the there was something that we discussed, you and I, Roger, you know, before the, this call, which is um, your work, Kate. And actually, on that very point, how do you say yes and how do you say no, potentially, if someone approaches you to be their manager? You know, how do you decide to take on a client? Is what are, do you go through a series of meetings? Do you get to know the individuals? Um, do you have your tall scoring systems? You know, how does that work? At this point, it's a gut feeling. Mm-hmm. I've been doing this so long that I just know if I can see, if I know what to do, that's what I have to do. Even if I really like somebody, but I don't know what to do to get them to where they want to be. You know, somebody, people have to be realistic and sometimes actors are not realistic. You know, you'll get somebody who looks like Danny DeVito who wants to be Robert Redford. <laughs> I don't know what to do to make that happen. So I have to see a realistic way forward. But as I say, mostly people come to me from other actors, people come to me from agents, lawyers, producers, that's that's sort of the, the flow in. I used to go to a lot of theater, which I don't do very much anymore. Um, well, I don't since COVID, I haven't. I don't go to New York that much anymore either. But yeah, it's really a gut feeling. Or I'll see somebody, I'll see a performance of somebody and, you know, I'll look them up and see. Most of the time, by the time I see somebody on TV, they're well represented. But I do watch a lot of English TV just because I like it. Um, but yeah, it's it, mostly now it's a gut feeling. And if I'm a bit on the fence, then 
I'll want to take a deeper dive into the work. You know, I'll I'll look at a lot of uh, demo reels. I'll watch a film. I'll do it that way. But it's, again, it's, do I want to speak to this person every day? You know, there's a quality, you have to like somebody to to want to speak to them every day. And there have been people that have crossed my path that I just thought, you know what, life's too short, or actually life's too long. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that I, I just can't. But um, I like to keep it at this point small so that I can really focus. So if you were watching a, a, a British TV series uh, and you saw somebody who you thought had potential and they weren't a, an actor currently in films, would you consider approaching them? Yes. I mean, you know, you know, I did that with Robson Green. I with Robson Green, I thought, yeah, I, I couldn't Ever. remember. It was, yeah, it's Robson and Green. I I wrote to his production company in Newcastle. I ended up speaking to the person who ran all of his stuff, and that was that was twenty years ago. And you know, he was happy doing his thing. And then, but I always sort of kept track of him because I thought he was very translatable to the American market, and. Um, about 10 or 12 years ago now, it was right after Christmas and I went to a, a breakfast actually with a group of people that I didn't know very well. Somebody invited me and somebody said to me, is there anybody you'd really like to represent? And I said, yes, I'd love to re- represent Robson Green. And the guy, one of the guys that was there, he goes, well, I'm his agent. <laughs> I said, really? And he said, yes. Anyway, to cut a very long story short, I met with him. He became a client. I, I, worked so hard on his reel and everything before he even came to LA. And then he came for pilot season and he stuck it out for about three weeks. And it was at a period he was going through a personal thing in his life at that time too. So the timing was really off, but that was somebody who I put so much time and energy into that didn't come to fruition. And you know, he was off doing his fishing thing and then, then he got Manchester. Oh, that's right, yeah. He could have, I still think he could have done really, really well here. That's one of those sort of bittersweet stories, the ones that get away. Mm. But, um, that was a case of seeing, you know, being aware of somebody in England. And then, but I'd say most of the time, by the time I become aware of somebody, you know, they're already spoken for. So what about victories or, you know, your time to make Roger and I feel very jealous? What about film sets you visited and film projects that would make us go, wow? <laughs> yes. You know, I suppose being on the set of Dirty Dancing when nobody thought that was going to be anything and just going to this little Lake Lure place in uh, wherever that state was, that North Carolina, I think, and just you know, just being there. And it was a very low budget, very, nobody thought very much of it kind of a movie. And then in retrospect, obviously it became that. So that's, and I was there the day that um, they were doing the lift out of the water. <laughs> it was cold. And um, also the day when they were doing that, that scene in the, in the dance studio where they kind of crawled to one another was there for that scene. That was pretty good. There were some of the grease scenes too. Um, uh, the big carnival at the end. 
was there that day. They actually shot the interior of the dance, dance a thon thing, dance competition. That was at Venice High School. I don't know, but that was done at Venice High School. So I I always think of that, you know, when I drive by now. Um, Other sets. I guess, I guess the biggest thing was the traveling with John because that was, he was such a superstar at that time. And we just went all over the world to the to Cannes to you know all of the film festivals. That was pretty much a highlight. I don't go on sets so much anymore. If there's a problem, I'll be there. But as I say, most of my clients now have had for such a long time. You just you know you just don't go so much. Um, yeah, you just don't go that much. And okay. of course, talking about dirty dancing. Uh, leads us to Patrick Swayze, obviously. Um, And we watched the documentary um, that is probably about a year ago, maybe even two years ago now. The the, the pandemic has really messed with my timelines. (laughs) But uh, I think there was two documentaries that that you took part in. One was about, was the three, yeah. So John Travolta and Patrick and somebody else. And... I guess one of the questions that um, we wanted to ask you was: A, how did you how did you get involved in the documentary? Obviously, you were delighted to do it, especially the one about Patrick, because I know that you and he had a very close relationship over many many years, and some of his films are just <laughs> stellar, aren't they? And I'd love to talk a bit a little bit about Ghost before we uh, hang up the call as well. But how how did you um, get involved in those documentaries? And and, and I'm, I'm sure it brought back a lot of memories. Yeah, they approached me actually. Mm-hmm on um on those and i was reluctant to do a second and particularly a third just because i didn't think that i would have anything fresh to say but fortunately i did um but what it required was i had to go back in that memory bank a lot um just because you know as life moves on you you sort of and it's painful too so you have to you know, you, you leave that where it is. So in order to keep it fresh and in order to do those three documentaries over a period of, I think it was probably four years, did three and four years. And um, just to keep it fresh and to, you know, not to embarrass myself, <laughs> um, I just, I went back and did a lot of research. It's funny, my mom uh, kept a diary from the time she was uh, 16 until almost the time that she died. And so I was able to go back in her diaries to get very specific timelines of things that happened. And one of the things that I talked about in one of the documentaries was that when Patrick first moved to LA, he and his wife needed a job and they would come and do carpentry work. And in one of my mom's entries, she said, Patrick was here today. He he was um, replacing the screens on the screens wow, I think he's going to go far. So I was able to get to the, the exact date that he was there <laughs> and her saying that. And so um, I went, I, you know, I used those diaries both for the John documentary and some for Patrick too. But then I also went back, I have five, I still have all of Patrick's files. So I was able to go back to those files. And I don't have John's files, but I have a lot of stuff <laughs> up there. And I hadn't spoken of him 
before and so there was a lot I, I didn't have to that was reliant more on my memory and not worried about what I'd said before because I hadn't said anything before so but it was it was nice to be able to do those the one that you guys I don't think would have seen it was done for this was a Patrick one that was done last February uh for ABC here I don't think that's aired there or anywhere else except here no, I think it was the uh, the the John Travolta one and the and the Patrick one from yes. eighteen eighteen months or so ago. Yeah. Um, obviously, Dirty Dancing is um, Patrick's big movie that everybody watches at least once a year. Uh, it's also one of those those movies that when you're flicking through the channels, it'll be on somewhere, and it doesn't matter where you you might you end up coming in on that scene where he's holding her up, or you come in on a scene with the, in the they're actually dancing, and you end up just end up watching it from where you you start. It's quite bizarre, isn't it? But, other films that do that. I guess Ghost, though, for me, um, and, and from pa Pascal's point of view as well, each week on the show, we always showcase a specific film. I, I, I find Ghost is one of those films which, to, to me, is almost perfect. It's a great script. The special effects were fabulous. Okay. Of course, there was that, that chemistry and the combination of comedy between Whoopi and, uh, and, and, and Patrick and, and the drama, the drama was good. And I, I, I still can't watch ghost without crying at the end. There's, there's not many films that I cannot cry at the end. One that always gets me is um, officer and a gentleman with the scene where Richard Gere walks in with his white costume on and picks Deborah, Deborah Winger up and carries her out. That makes me cry. And the end of ghost when he, he appears again, just before he goes up um, into the, uh, into, into heaven. And that bit always gets me blubbing. But what, what are your memories of the, of the time around the, the, the filming of ghost and, 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 and everything that was happening there? Honestly, I wasn't around for Ghost because Patrick left the management company right right before Ghost. Um, we had read it and suggested that you know, he do it, but we were not involved in that. So I wasn't on the set of Ghost. Um, that was a that was a particularly weird period of time because Bob Lamont had passed away, and Lois Zeder, who ran the company, became you know chief manager, and, and Patrick and Lois didn't always see eye to eye. So Patrick actually wanted me to go off and run a production company for him. But I chose at that moment not to do that because I was pretty much running the whole management company at that time. So um, my memories of Ghost are, are like you've seen it after reading the script though and then and then actually being in the theater seeing it. And it is, it's, it's a magical, magical film that still holds up. And Patrick fought to get Whoopi in that movie because they mm -hmm. didn't want her. Well, they didn't want him either at the beginning. He had to go in. He went in because it was a follow-up to Roadhouse and the, the director said that that guy in Roadhouse will never be in my film. And then uh, Patrick's agent got him that audition after much chat and he went in and did every scene and at the end, they were crying as well. And that sort of turned it around. And Patrick was in a position at that point to kind of say, I won't do this unless you get Whoopi. And so she 
I think in her Academy Award-winning speech, she told that story. Um, but that's she got that role, and that movie, I think, will, besides Dirty Dancing, I think that's the one that will live on you know, longer than we will. Can you imagine what the film would have been like without Patrick Swayze and Whoopi Goldberg? It just... Oh. You know that... They'll probably remake it. They're making, a, they're remaking <laughs> wow. Roadhouse. They're remaking Dirty Dancing. Right. Isn't so. that fascinating, though, how on occasion somebody like the director of Ghost couldn't see what we as an audience could see? You know, it's fascinating to me because if you look yeah. at Patrick's work, and um, um, I mean, interestingly, in France... Roadhouse came out before Dirty Dancing, or should I say Dirty Dancing came out? Dirty Dancing, yes. And then Dirty didn't really get a good, you know, much of a reaction. Roadhouse and just blew up on screen. At the time, I just uh, taken martial arts. I thought I won't be Bruce Lee. I'd be Dalton instead. Much, much better. And then, so they really rediscovered Patrick Swayze, and then with VHS cassettes and the rental, we everybody could go through the back catalogue, you know, including early movies. I mean, if if you've seen. Um, the outsiders, you get it, you know, and and somehow somebody like the director of Ghost could say, "Not that that guy in on on my set." It's just remarkable to me that audiences can sometimes connect better with the work of actors and actresses than the producers and actors themselves. It's true. It's true. It's frustrating, and it's true. <laughs> but thank goodness, you know, it, it, it's possible that he would have never got in that room, you know, and. Um, Thankfully, he did. Thankfully, he did. But, but that's that's sort of sometimes the frustration when you can see it so clearly and you know, and they won't see it, and that that does happen when things, you know, go to other actors. That's that's part of it. That's the that's the thing. That's the frustration or the challenge of being an actor too, is because you're always looking for a job. You know, even when you're established, you're always looking for a job. And that can create, you know, a lot of insecurity, a lot of financial insecurity. Um, so it's it's not a job for the faint of heart at all. Well, that gives us a great segue into the world of, of marketing, marketing a what we and I would call Roger a personal brand, but I imagine that's been the case for decades in the film industry. So when we review um, marketing campaigns for films, I'll have you know that we reviewed 99 film marketing campaigns, Kate. That's amazing. And you'll help us choose number 100 very, very soon. So we've looked at the effort from the, you know, an audience, you know, that we looked at the posters, we look at the trailers, we look at the social media campaign, the PR stunts and so on. But there's one thing that we always wondered is, is it part of the contract of, of, of the talent to, you know, make themselves available for photo shoots and to, to help, you know, the, the media company in charge of their marketing to have all the assets. And that must take a lot of time. Yes. And that's, Again, that's what the agent doesn't have anything to do with, and yet still, I still am doing my job with that. But yes, it's in the contract. Sometimes it's very specific. Sometimes it's very general. Uh, general. Um, but yes, the photo shoots. Um, again, you know, um, they used to be press tours, and that's what I would go on with John around the world, where you would literally go around the world. They bring press in. Now most of that's done on Zoom as well. 
mm. because they don't have to fly even even and then it went to where they would bring instead of flying the, the actors around they would bring the press in from other mm. places to LA do press days that's not happening anymore either that, so it's so it's definitely changing of course they didn't used to be the social media presence in contracts they can't force you to be on social media if you're not on social media um but they like you to be um, a couple of like Will Patton. He's never been on social media and he still works all the time. So they can't force you to, but they, but the photo sessions, a certain amount of press. Yeah. That's required. That's required. Some, some actors love it. Some actors feel that their job is just acting and being, and, and they, you know, they don't want to be part of that, but obviously in today's world, it's huge. It feels, and we were discussing this, weren't we, Roger, in the green room, it must be exhausting to do the the, the rounds of the premieres and the press junket. I mean, we reviewed, for example, the, the marketing of the um, Dungeons & Dragons movie, and that was just an extraordinary marketing machine. It was great for us you know, to review what they'd done. But they had premieres every day in different continents. It was just, I mean, they must have like some special smoothies and I had to keep the energy going, but uh, it was incredible. It's grueling because and it's not just that. They do BAFTA screenings. They do director's guild screenings. They do, you know, it's full on. Of course, the actors don't sit there through the whole thing, but they have to go from pillar to post to get to do the Q&As afterwards. And it's it's exhausting. It it really, it really is. Um, yeah, I, having been part of some of those, then it, as I say, it was different. But now it's sort of on steroids, isn't it? All of that's required, and all of the all of the different outlets that are required to feed. Basically, it's um, it's daunting. It's daunting. You know, because you mentioned... Yeah, some people aren't either. <laughs> yeah. Because you mentioned his name, Kate, we have to talk about Will Patton. I mean, I just <laughs> absolutely adore his work. Uh, again, like everybody else, I guess I discovered uh, him in No Way Out. Yeah. Um, because without him, I mean, all the others are fine. You know, of course they are, but without him and his character and the way he, he did it, uh, it would be a very, very different movie. And then ever since I've been tracking his progress like Roger has, uh, it's just wonderful to have someone like him in the industry, isn't it? Yeah, and he's he's such a, a gentle soul. Um, he's been my client now for 30 years. <sighs> I know, isn't that... I, I, it staggers me to even say that, but um, he has and, you know... You know, he's, he's kept working all this time. It's sustaining a career is often harder than beginning, than starting somebody off. It's sustaining a career over time that's a challenge as taste changes, you know, popularity of certain genres change. It's, and as you age, it's, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it's hard to keep it all going. But he has a series, I don't know if you guys have seen it yet, but he has a series that he shot in England that's now on Apple Plus TV called Silo with Rebecca Ferguson. It's in the trailer, but not here yet. Yeah, it's actually really good. Um, 
so he yeah he was he shot that in England in very very difficult circumstances during the pandemic in an old refrigerator factory it all takes place inside this silo and so they built this set inside this old refrigerated factory it was freezing cold and you know they had to pump in smoke to give that atmospheric look and it was very very difficult circumstances but it's turned out very well but he's doing a film now a trilogy of films with Kevin Costner because he's you know been friends with Kevin since no way out <laughs> since no way out my goodness <laughs> yeah. and there's another series called outer range that he's yes that he was in as well he's just finishing on uh friday is his last day of the second season of that so hopefully they won't get struck shut down because of the strike before he's finished but <laughs> pascal we are going to have to go back and do no way out I, that is a film i've not seen for a long, long time but there you go that could be the hundredth uh, film number no, 100 no way thanks out. to kate edwards no way out <laughs> perfect oh. uh, well kate as, as we sort of draw our conversation to a to a close here is there anything really exciting coming up on the horizon that a, you're allowed to talk about, um, and B, without giving too many spoilers away, uh, and, and B, that you want to talk about that that's coming up in uh, in film or TV land that we should look out for. Well, this is something that is exciting for me. I have a client called Lisa Guerrero, who is the chief investigative reporter on a show here called Inside Edition, and she she reports on scams and murders and unsolved crimes anyway she has written a book and it's it's called warrior and you know we've been working together on that and that came out and there's now a lot of interest from a variety of outlets here to make that into a television series so i'll let you know further about that but to take to take her own personal story into a book to then translate that on screen is pretty exciting because you don't get to do that very often, you know, from to create from the very beginning. And she's a wonderful person and, you know, has had a, an incredibly interesting life. And so this, I would, I would hope by this time next year we'll be in production. Wow. Yeah. Well, def definitely going to keep an eye out for that. That sounds really interesting. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Roger, as you were hinting at, you know, sadly, our time together is coming to an end. I mean, we could talk to you for much longer, Kate, because um, we've decided <laughs> we'll that yeah, a year. We could do it once a year and see what happens. Well, <laughs> why know, not? Why not? In, in your business, a verbal agreement is, you know, is <laughs> yes, I will do that. It'll be interesting to see, actually, what happens with the writer's strike. You know, mm. if things go back to being in person, the further away from COVID that we get, we'll see. But, yeah, I'd be happy to do that. So what we thought we would do to kind of wrap this up with a bit of fun, we're going to ask you to take part in the film marketing fun quiz. And okay. I'm going to invite Roger to ask you the first fun question. So these are really quick fire questions. So just the first thing that comes to your mind. So <laughs> if you could have a Zoom call with a famous film director, past or present, who would it be? Oh, Michelangelo Antonioni. Nice. Blowout. He did that that movie called Blowout, and yeah. I worked with him briefly. And he spoke French. Uh, oh no, he spoke Italian. 
we both spoke, he didn't speak any English. We both spoke a little bit of French. So it was a very weird thing. But I would like to be able to speak to him in one language. <laughs> no, that such a good movie. <laughs> yeah. On that very point, question number two, if you could remake a classic, which film would it be? Mm. I sort of have a love-hate relationship with remakes, to be honest. Mm -hmm. They always kind of make me cringe a little bit. I thought, um, I thought the remake of All Quiet on the Western Front was brilliant, so it can be done. I don't know. I, 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 I like new things and new ideas. I think. So that's that's a question I'm gonna. That's love that. that's fine. That's absolutely fine. What's your go-to movie when you need cheering up, Kate? Oh gosh. Let's see. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. <laughs> 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 it always makes me laugh. Always, always. Oh, actually, so on that very subject, the very first movie you saw on the big screen bambi wow and i had to be taken out because i got i was i got so upset um i got so upset i had to i had to leave but that was the first film but on a brighter note the films that i became i became obsessed with a, a film with kirk douglas called um ulysses it was either ulysses or odysseus i can't remember but i would dress my dolls in that greek <laughs> <laughs> that I saw that when I lived in Lowestoft, and I, I had the babysitter take me numerous times because I just became obsessed with that film. So that was the last. That was the first movie you saw on the big screen. Which which was the last one you saw on the big screen? Oh my goodness. Um. Um. I'm trying to think. It was either All Quiet on the Western Front, or. I think it was all quiet on the Western Front. I, it poses me because because I'm a member of BAFTA. They send me a link so I can see everything. So I don't see that much on the big screen. Oh, oh yeah. See it on my you know my seventy inch TV, but I don't see it on the big big screen anymore. But yeah, I did see all quiet on the Western Front. And final question for you then: for your next birthday party, which band or artist would you like to invite to play for you and your friends? Queen. <laughs> you mean in real life or in, in my imagination? Is, is, that, imagination. Is, that, is that Queen with Adam Lambert playing or is that Queen with Freddie back? No, that's Queen with Freddie, but I am going to see Queen with Adam Lambert in November. I'm also going to go and see uh, it's the final tour of, um, oh, I can't, just blanked on the name. You know, the ones that dress up in platform shoes. Abba. Ma madness. Mad no. No. Uh, with that's makeup on the face. Kiss. 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 Oh, well, yeah, yeah. Obviously kiss. And I, I want to get tickets for Aerosmith, but I don't know if I'm going to be able to get tickets. <laughs> <laughs> so the no. Who last year was great. They were they were brilliant. Who wow. was the Hollywood Bowl? I must admit, I, I would definitely go and see Queen with Adam Lambert. And I mean, I did go and I was for, fortunate enough to see Queen in 1986 at Wembley, which was the last, uh -huh. the last one of the last concerts of freddie did there is a dvd and i have tried to find myself in the audience you can freeze frame it and, but obviously absolutely no, no 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 it was i was so 
tiny in the and it wasn't high definition but uh, no the, i mean they are they always put on a good show and you know oh, yeah. i don't i i always think that freddie possibly has some sort of some sort of immortality because he died young um i mean there's a lot of my favorite groups like for example genesis uh we were meant to see them a few a couple of years ago but the covid uh paid to that and they they never re rescheduled the glasgow event but phil collins just can't sing anymore and i do wonder whether when fred if freddie had still been alive he would have been in his mid 70s now and he might not have been able to sing as he was then and maybe it's better to have the memories of him as he was at live aid than i don't know it's it's a difficult situation to think about well, you think about Janis Joplin and you think about um, some of the other greats that were unique unto themselves, maybe the good do die young, you know, yeah. for that reason that you just said, because you can't imagine. And yet, and yet look at Paul McCartney, you know, he's still rocking on. Mm. And the Rolling Stones. Still yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Rolling along. <laughs> but yeah, some... It would have been hard for Freddie, I think, with because of the extent of the talent of that voice. Yeah. To to do that. Yeah, it would be difficult for him. Wow. Well, thank you so much for for coming on the show and talking to us. It's been great to reminisce and to catch up. And uh, Pascal, we will uh, definitely be back for more next year. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> have a lovely rest of the well, it's your night. Have a lovely rest of your evening. Yeah. Not thank at all. Thank you very much for having me. And thank and you for helping us celebrate now episode number 100 of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, a project that started three years ago. Uh, we keep reminding ourselves during COVID because to to keep at bay boredom and, and insanity. And uh, it's it just been just delightful. And thank you for allowing us to discover a bit more what happens, you know, uh, before and during uh, the film production. So, so thank you, everybody, for watching or listening to Two Geeks in the Marketing Podcast, episode 100. We've been absolutely delighted to have this conversation with Kate Edwards today. Until the next episode, remember to go out there and make sure that your marketing is done right. I was Roger Edwards, and he was Pascal Fintoni. Bye.